Well, it's good to see you, Risen Church. My name is Jeff Metters, and I am a member over at Risen Northwest over in Cyprus, and so it's a joy uh, to be with you. I ask you to please take your Bibles, I hope you have them, and go to Psalm 63. As you have been going through these rhythms of remembrance and looking at different psalms and, and how they shape us, Psalm 63 is where we are this morning, and this psalm is so formative, and I, I hope and I know God's going to do some stuff in us as he has in me as I've studied this week. Let's look at verse 1 as our brother David, by the Holy Spirit, wrote centuries and centuries ago, he writes, Psalm 63:1. It'll also be up on the screen. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and Meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Thank God for his word. You know, as a, as a parent, you know the sounds your kids make. Especially if you have multiple kids and you hear one kind of crying. I remember my wife and I can sit there and go, which one is that? Oh, yep, that's that one. They'll be fine. They'll be fine. <laughs> but it's the other one, you're like, oh, we better go. They're probably actually hurt. Uh, the other one just lost an eyelash and is crying over the eyelash <laughs> that, that fell out. But you can also tell, like, when they're sleeping and the kind of cries that happen, and you can tell when one of them is having a nightmare. And I'll never forget when my little girl, she's about to be 13 now, but she was very tiny, and she was in the crib, still a little baby, and she's getting close to getting in the big girl bed and starting to navigate all that. But she was having a kind of Freddy Krueger nightmare. The, the kind of scream that she was just belting out made my wife and I both pop up like, whoa, what's going on? And I run in there. She's still asleep, just thrashing and, and screaming and crying, just bloody murder. And I, I pick her up and I try to console her and like, it's okay, it's okay, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. And I, I got you. And she is just, her little, you know those little baby fingernails? Man, they're sharp. <laughs> and she's just clutching onto my chest and the skin and my shirt collar and the hair and just all this stuff. And she's got hold of me as tight as she can, and I'm, I'm holding her close to it. It's okay. And she's clinging to me, and I'm holding onto her. I got you. I got you. I got you. And she began to calm and wake up and just nestle, you know. She clings instead of fighting because she trusts. She's trusting. And I'm holding because I'm loving. 
And beloved, King David's doing the exact same thing this morning. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, David writes, My soul clings to you, grabbing, clutching, nails. I'm, I'm holding on to you, God. But look at what else is happening. Your right hand upholds me. So sometimes we think, God, I'm just grabbing hold. Will you do something? I'm trying. And we don't see the outward, zoomed out perspective of him saying, yeah, I'm holding you. And you can only actually cling to me because I'm holding you. But it doesn't leave us there thrashing in the bed, screaming bloody murder in our nightmare. But he picks us up, holds us, and we go, I'm clinging to you. Because your right hand upholds me. And beloved, David is is in a nightmare. The context of this psalm is a brutal nightmare. Look at Psalm 63, right before verse 1. This is in the actual text. It doesn't have a number, but this is part of the psalm. It says, a psalm of David, so I know it's David, but look. When he was in the wilderness of Judah... So there are, I think, 13 psalms that have this kind of subscript of this is what's happening, this is what's happening, this is what's happening. Psalm 34 is one, when he is at the gates and he, David makes himself crazy and has spit run into his beard so he doesn't get kidnapped. This is another one in the wilderness of Judah. Now, a lot of scholars go, maybe it's this situation with Saul when he's running from King Saul who's trying to kill him. I don't think it's that because you can see at verse 11, what does it say? But the king shall rejoice in God. So David knows, he's saying, I am the king in this moment. What's happening here is when David is on the run from Absalom. If you're not familiar with 2 Samuel, this is the account when David's son, Absalom, says, the kingdom's mine now, Dad. And he is trying to kill David. His own son is trying to stage a coup And so far, it's working. David is now out in the wilderness, hiding from his own flesh and blood. A boy he raised, a boy he loved, a boy he cared for, has now have him run out to the wilderness, has now David as trying, I mean, Absalom has just run him out, run him off, trying to run him over and run away with the kingdom. This is why David says in verse three, your steadfast love is better than life. Verse four, I'll bless you as long as I live. You know why he's saying those two things? This might be the end. My son is trying to kill me. I'm gonna bless you as long as I live. My son has me run out hiding in a cave in the wilderness. I am the king of Israel and I am hiding in the woods. I'll bless you as long as I live because Absalom might catch me, and it might be the end. So, Risen, this is the first thing we need to really see about this psalm, is that this psalm wasn't written in the context of a comfy throne room, eating grapes and just saying, how great is God? God is like rich food. No, that, that, that is not the context of a comfy throne room. This spiritual display isn't written in the confines of a pastor's office with AC and commentaries surrounding him. This isn't in a seminary classroom or this isn't a comfy couch or breakfast table with a fresh French press there for us to enjoy. These words from David come from a context of bullets flying over his head. 
of him hunkered next to a rock, wondering if the assassins are going to find him or not. These words come from somebody who has, whose body is beaten down. Did you catch it? Look what he says. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land. He's saying, that's where I am. And this shows me, this dry and weary land shows me what my soul is like to you. So he, his stomach is growling. He is desperate for water. We've never been in these situations where our stomach is growling. Maybe you've skipped a meal because you were too busy. You're like, oh, I'm dying. The closest we've gotten is Sundays when we're Chick-fil-A's closed. We've never felt thirst for water like this because we can all quickly go anywhere we live. Water, 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 water. It's everywhere. David has no access. Verge of death. He can't even get a good night's sleep. That's why he's saying in verse 6, I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you as I'm counting sheep. No, in the watches of the night. He's having to keep an eye open going, are Absalom's people about to find me? All of this context matters because sometimes we think spirituality best happens uh, out on a deer lease looking at a sunset. But often we find our spirituality rises to the surface when we are backed into a corner. The, the great Puritan John Owen says, suffering and persecution and trial and difficulty, those, they're like steam gauges to the soul. When difficulty crashes in, when wilderness moments, whether they're physical, spiritual, emotional, relational, whatever they are, when these wilderness seasons arrive, John Owen says, what comes out of your soul? That's the steam gauge. That's the reading. That's the thermometer. And what comes out of David's soul as he is in the throes of the wilderness that he might have a death sentence hanging over him, what rises out of his soul are glorious, beautiful, helpful words. And so for us, why this is so helpful is because these words were not manufactured in a sterile, clean, manicured life. And that's not any of our lives, no matter what we post on Instagram. That's not any of our churches, no matter what we put in newsletters. They are messy. They are filled with pain. They're filled with difficulty, disappointment, fear. And these glorious words about God that we just read, they all come as David's life is in meltdown. As, as he is in DEFCON 1. That's actually the highest, I think, too. Sometimes we think DEFCON 5 is the highest. I think it's, I want, that's like, one's actually the highest. This, David's life is now in Chernobyl. It is all collapsing. It is all falling apart. And listen, your life will have meltdown moments if it hasn't already. There will be moments in your life where you are thinking, what is God doing? There will be moments in your life where you will be tempted to think, God must hate me. I must have been wrong about God. I must not be a Christian the way things are unfolding in my life. And those are all 
the kinds of things that the enemy wants us to believe. And now David helps us say, no, no, no. When your life goes that way, actually, you should go this way. Follow how I've gone. This is why the first word for us is so helpful in Psalm 63. 63, one, very first word. Oh, God. And this is not a vocalization of, oh, God, you're wonderful. This is actually a vocalization of, oh, God, things are awful. There will be times in your life where you will sit back in a chair and you will just mutter, oh, God. Oh, God, what have I done? You'll lie face down on the floor in your living room and you'll just say, oh, God. Your hands will be in your face holding back tears and you'll say, oh, God. And, then, and the next words might be, oh, God, the cancer. Oh, God, my child. Oh, God, this person. Oh, God, my marriage. Oh, God. And notice what David does. He actually goes Godward first. That's the, the second word. Oh, God, you are my God. Even though I'm, as we've heard elsewhere, even though I'm walking in the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me, even though I am in the wilderness and my own son is trying to kill me. Oh, God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you. And David still does clue us in on what's happening. That's verses 9 and 11. So it's not that he's like, oh, I don't really care about my situation. No, he cares about his situation. Those are, that are seeking to destroy my life, God, take care of him. So he knows that, but first, he goes Godward. And that's what we must learn to do. That's what David's teaching us. Here's one thing we should always remember about the Psalms. Right? Maybe, I know the, a lot is always said every sermon. Sometimes we don't remember stuff. I just hope you remember this. Um, the Psalms are not spiritual mints. Sometimes we feel like we need a refresher, and we go to the Psalms, and we pick one, and oh, mm, that was good. That is a purpose, but that, that's not the whole purpose. A steak does the same thing, but steak actually gives calories and energy and is a lot better than a mint. The Psalms are steaks, and they're actually also kind of like instructional videos. They're not a collection of homogenized, disconnected truths. They're actually more like a schematic to follow, that when this situation happens in your life, when, when this is occurring, when, when this emotion, this mental state, whatever it may be, that... The Psalms from 1 to 150 show you, here's how to rewire your heart. Just like we go to YouTube and go, how in the world do I fix this? How does this get back together? How do I nail a fence board back? I've, I've done that. It seems easy. It's not. And there are things in your life where you go, well, I should be able to fix that. You can't. I should know how to do this. You don't. But the Psalms say, oh, David's been there. Moses has been there. The sons of Korah have been there. There will be occasions in your life where you start reading the Psalms and you'll think, is this my journal? This looks like stuff I'm going through. And that's the gift of the Psalms. They are a schematic and instructional, a formational experience for all followers of Christ. It is input for your output. Because we do not have native within us, oh, here's how to respond to these situations. Here's how to think. Here's how to feel. Here's how to act. That is not within us now after Adam and Eve gnashed into that fruit. 
But the Psalms now give us input for our output to help us in our spiritual survival mode. That when you are in the wilderness, this is the first point, that you would go Godward. That's what he says in Psalm 63.1. Look at verse 1 again. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh, my body faints for you. As in, this is a metaphor, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So as David's sitting there, just like my mouth is so dry right now, and just like my body is on the brink of failure, God, that's how much I need you. That's how much I need you. And look at how many yous there are. If you're writing your Bible, you should underline them. Look at how many yous and yours there are. 17 in these 11 verses. He is just committed. I'm thinking about God. My, oh God, you are my God, earnestly. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. Verse two, so I have looked upon you, beholding your power and glory. Verse three, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name. And then verse six, when I remember you and meditate on you, Verse 7, for you, in the shadow of your wings, my, verse 8, my soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. David is saying, I know my situation. I, I know it. I'm not oblivious to it. But what I need more than my situation to be remedied is I need you. It is well with my soul because I have you. And what's so striking and and convicting to me is if we zoom out and take a big picture of these, there there are a lot of things that happen in Bible study. There are some very popular Bible teachers who will go through a book of the Bible in 10 years. They'll go through Jude in 10 years, 25 verses in 10 years. That is not how to study the Bible. Um, Sometimes you can miss the forest by examining a piece of bark. Sometimes we need to zoom out and See the trees and see the whole forest. And so to zoom out from Psalm 63, which is not an epistle, which is not written the way Paul would write, very logical. There's lots of jumping around and chiasms and X and mirrors and all these things. But you zoom out from Psalm 63 and you get a great picture. 11 verses, eight verses about God's goodness to the soul. Three verses about David's situation. Ours are usually flip-flopped. God, this is terrible. God, this person. God, my job. God, my money. God, my business. Why? Why? You're amazing too, but... So this is instructive to us that getting our answers or getting our situation changed is not as important as God, I need you. I need you. Sometimes God takes us to the wilderness so we can see this. It's always amazing if you read about the temptations of Jesus in Matthew 4 and in Luke. The Spirit, it says, the Spirit led him into the wilderness. And and didn't in the Exodus, the fire, the pillar of fire and the cloud lead them through the wilderness for 40 years. And sometimes we look at God like, why am I in the wilderness? And he goes, I brought you here. 
and I'm with you. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the scriptures don't say he waits for us on the other side. No, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and my cup overflows, and you anoint my head with oil. See, he is with us in the midst of all of these things. David is teaching us that situational change is secondary to the primary of earnestly I seek you, God. Earnestly I need you, God. This is why I love so much that what David's teaching us is that our situation can change, but maybe we didn't change and that would be a loss. But if our situation doesn't change and we change, that's a win. As Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I have learned to be content in all things, in plenty and in want, and being in jail and not being in jail. I have learned to live as Christ and to die. I've learned to count all things as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. If we grow in enjoying God, delighting in God, savoring God, like the best food available, look at verse five. Look at what he says. My soul, and there's three times he talks about his soul. It's in verse one, it's in verse five, it's in verse eight. These are kind of the three major moments in it. But he says in verse five, my soul will be, I know it, I believe it, will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Now, in Hebrew, it's, it's actually saying, my soul will be satisfied, satisfied as with fatness and fatness. That's a beautiful verse. <laughs> if you, you've had really fatty um, great steak, and you may have had, like, nasty dollar steak, it's tough it's hard to chew. It's hard to even swallow. You're like, ah, that's great. And then you've had, uh, maybe you have beautiful steak with tons of marbling. Just, you look at it and it looks like a painting. It looks like a Picasso or a Van Gogh. Look at all these swirls and it's just so beautiful. And then, like, I've been at my, my wife's uncle, is a, he's a five-star chef in New Orleans, and we go to this restaurant, and they, didn't ha- they don't have salt and pepper on the table. That's when you know you're at a good restaurant. There's no salt and pepper. And you ask for it, and they just say, no. You know, <laughs> you know, they've got gloves on and all this stuff. And the steak comes out. It's a beautiful filet, and all it came with is a fork. That's fatness upon fatness. That's rich food. And so I hope we can all eliminate something from our vocabulary. I've heard too many Christians say, oh, that's too rich for me. I can't eat that. That's like saying, this is too delicious. I don't deserve it. No, eat it. Enjoy it. God giving it to you. All that to say, David's saying, I want the richest of rich food, which is you. It's not my situation changing. It's not me getting the thing that I've wanted my whole life. It's not the job. It's not the business. It's not the car. It's not this kind of relationship. What it really is is you, God. That's what will satisfy me. As with fatness upon fatness. Something that's way better than I could ever imagine. 
That's why David is resolved to worship no matter what. No matter what. He doesn't need the grapes. He doesn't need the AC. He just needs his heart beating to worship because he knows God. He's going to worship God no matter what. This is the second point. He worships God no matter what. Look at verse 3 and 4. Because your steadfast love is better than life. Now, here's what you have to notice. The because in verse 3 is not, is not connected like tendons to verse 2. It's actually, you could translate that because rather as since. Sometimes we think of because as like, oh, that must be connected to the first one. Not really. It's since your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. This is the cause and effect of David's spiritual formation. What leads to his worship? Since your steadfast love is better than life, I'm going to praise you. I mean, guys, it is amazing that Absalom's betrayal has not clouded David's worship. It is Absalom, his son. We all have probably been betrayed at some point in our lives by a friend, by a colleague, by a stranger, by an associate, but to have a family member. That is the utmost sting, pain in a child. David could be throwing rocks and screaming at God. You let this happen. After all I've done for you, after I killed that giant in front of all those people, after I sacrificed and after I killed all of those Philistines and after I did this. Come on. Now, he does have, full disclosure, he does have psalms like that as well. Psalm 13 is one. How long, O oh Lord? But here, David's older. He's a king. He's seen a lot. He's been through a lot. He, he's thinking about things faster. And now he says, God's love is actually steadfast. It's better than how I want my life working out. I can sing and praise. Do you believe that for real? I know you know that it's biblical to think that. We're in church. We know that. If you've heard one worship song and one sermon, you know God is good. But do you live it? When things are awful, when life is terrible, when you're just confused and you don't know what to do and, and you can't believe you've done the thing that you've done. And you can't believe the way things are unfolding the way that they are and your business is what it is and, and just on and on and on. Will you resolve to say, this is not a commentary on God's love for me. That's what the world wants. That's what the devil wants you to think that what's happening in your life is a commentary of how God thinks of you. And that is not the truth. That is the, really the book of Job, isn't it? Job's life is in complete meltdown, like nothing we've seen. And his wife and his friends are looking at him saying, look at what you've done. You must have done something. And just berating him. And he says, I know my Redeemer lives. And I will see him. And then he does kind of complain a little. Then God shows up in a tornado, and you, I'll save the rest for you. Will you still say, 
No matter what's happening in the wilderness around me, God's love is unshakable. This is not a commentary on God's love for me because the cross and the empty tomb are the commentary I listen to. His love is what I listen to. That while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. That at my lowest, God loved me immeasurably. It's not changing because of what the doctor has told me. It hasn't changed because of what the cardiologist said. It hasn't changed because of what's happening in my, in my child's life at school. That's why David says in verse 4, since he knows what's true, so since verse 2 and 3 are true, so I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands. And I love that he says, in your name. It's not conditioned. The praise isn't conditioned by, because you've done this, I'm going to lift my hands up. It's your name. You could have done nothing else for me, but invited me into a relationship where I know your name, Yahweh, where I know your name, Jesus, where I know your name, Holy Spirit. That's enough for me to praise. There's no deal. No quid pro quo. No, oh, well, you know, kids love to make deals. We were playing Monopoly with our family. Started Friday night, still going. <laughs> it's a bad idea, but there's deals happening and some under the table stuff I'm kind of, I need to ask about, but whatever. If you do this for me, I'll do this for you. How about this? I'll stay rent-free on Boardwalk if you let me have this and all this kinds of stuff. It's good for kids to learn how to make deals because that's how the world works. That's how the world is, but that's not how God is. God is the only one that's saying, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't make deals that require you to bring a lot to the table. The first, one of the first deals we see is with God and Abraham. God's saying, I'm going to make a deal with you, Abraham, but why don't you go to sleep because I'm going to take care of this. And God walks through the torn pieces of the animals by himself with Abraham on the side because I will bear the burden of this deal. God makes a deal with David, the Davidic covenant, and says, I will bless you and I will bring out a king from your line and he will reign because of me. I will be faithful to him. God is totally worthy of all praise, even when the wheels fall off, because he's invited us in. Because we know his name. It, we, it's not conditional on what he's done for us. It's that he's brought us in. And hear me, anything less is prosperity gospel. Anything less than just praising God for who he is and what he's done for us in his grace and in his mercy. Anything that, okay, now we're conditioned. Well, God, I want you to do this, or I don't know if I can bless you. I want you to do this. or Anything else is prosperity gospel. See, sometimes our praise is inhibited by the wilderness we're in when it ought to be unleashed by the love of God we inhabit. I'll say it again. Sometimes... Our praise has become inhibited by the wilderness we're in when it ought to be unleashed by the love of God that we inhabit and that's inhabited us. As like David saying, nothing's gonna stop my praise of God because he is good, isn't he? Because he is glorious. Because his steadfast love is better than anything we could get in life and anything we would want in life. So how can we get the praise going for real? We know that. Yes, I know his love is better than life, but I'm struggling. I, how? 
This is the last thing David, we see David do in survival mode. Meditate on God. First thing, go Godward. Worship God. And if you're struggling to worship God, meditate on God. Meditation's all the rage in our culture. Multi-billion dollar apps and all kinds of tools and all that. That's not the same kind of meditation as this. Of, of emptying, worldly meditation often consists of emptying the mind and humming or repeating some kind of phrases or whatever. That's not biblical meditation. We got to go to Hebrew meditation. This is all the way back. We see this. This is not a new thing. The Buddhists didn't find it out. David's doing this. The person on TikTok teaching meditation, David knew how to do this way before. And look at what he says in verses five through seven. My soul be satisfied as with rich food. Now verse six. When I remember you upon my bed, Meditate on you in the watches of the night. So when I remember you, why will his soul... See, these things are connected. Look at verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with rich food, comma... You could take away what's in between these two commas. And it goes right to verse 6. So my soul will be satisfied when I remember you. And... Meditate. So the satisfaction is coming from the remembering and from the meditating. Meditating on God. For meditating what about him? Verse 7. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. That's beautiful. To get your mind on God going, God, you have been my help. That before the foundation of the world, God had already helped you. And set his love on you in Christ. That right now, he is your help. Your heart is beating. You are breathing all these things because God is your help. You are here today because God has been your help. You heard the gospel in third grade or in high school or as a sophomore in college or as an adult in an AA meeting. You heard the gospel. It came to you because God has been your help. And David says, I remember how you helped me. You delivered me from the mouth of a lion and from a bear when I watched over sheep as a little boy. Is Absalom any match for the Lord? No. You were my help when everyone else was afraid. When King Saul was afraid of Goliath, you helped me. Goliath taunted David. You come at me like a dog with sticks and your rocks. I'm a warrior. I'm a champion. I'm 9-9, son. And David says, I, I come to you in the name of the Lord our God that you've defied and profaned, and he will deliver you into my hands, and I will cut off your head. Let's rumble. <laughs> we know God has been your help. There are things you can look at now in the world, in the wilderness, and say, let's rumble. Let's go. For God has been my help. He will deliver me. And so you have to remember and meditate on these things like David has done. As David is laying there at night trying to sleep, and he can't because he knows his, son, his son's assassins might find him. And he's got his back up against the rock because he's smart. He's not going to be, I'll just sleep out in the open. No, he's up against some rocks, shooing bugs away. One eye, okay, 10 minutes. He's checking again, night watches. He's probably got sticks set up and traps and all kinds of things. And he's meditating on God's power. You see, the things he meditates on are in verses 2 and 3. 
your power and your glory, your goodness, your steadfast love. So, beloved, meditating on God is filling the mind and the heart and the soul with God, with the truth of God. We, Oh, you guys live in the woodlands. I live in Cypress Tomball. Do y'all ever see cows out here? Are there like cow pastures out here? No. I take my kids to school. Cow, cow, cows, cows everywhere. Out in Tomball. There's just cows all over the place. And at Risen Northwest, there'll be cows just walking across the, the property sometimes, all kinds of mess. And there's just cows everywhere. And you watch a cow just eat all day, just grazing. Grazing, grazing. You're going to graze today. It's Halloween. There's going to be food out. There's going to be kids' candy out. And you're just going to be grazing and eating and snacking the whole time. That kind of same biblical word of meditation is like, a, or if you've had a dog, that it gets its toy and it's just gnawing on that bone, gnawing on that. We give our dogs these salty pig ears and they just go nuts for them. Um, and they just gnaw and gnaw and just kind of growl over them. That's biblical meditation of having this thing and chewing and grazing and grazing and chewing. And then like the cows and it goes into the stomach and then the other stomach and the other stomach. And it's just all these things. And they're getting the energy and the calories and the power that they need to keep going. God has rooted in that same process into our souls. Biblical meditation is not, God, you're good. I should feel better. God, I know you're sovereign. How come I don't feel better? That's not meditation. That's God as a cough drop. And God is not a cough drop. God is not just an ointment you just put on top. I should feel better. No, it's the steak, it's the grazing. It's the continual chewing, the continual eating, the continual. See, meditating on God is, the, is a way to thrive in the wilderness because it's a way of refusing to let what's out there affect what's in here. It's, it's, a, it's a saying, no, I, I know what's out there, but I will not let what's out there dictate what's happening in here. I will meditate on God because you have been my help. Verse 7, you've been my help and in the shadow of your wings. I will, I will, I will sing for joy. I love so much that the Psalms are just belligerent with singing. They refuse to just not let us think about singing. We need to sing. God has given us the gift of singing. And sometimes we just think, well, I'll just think about the words. No. In the shadow of your wings, I will think about doctrinal truth. Way too many Reformed Christians just think about doctrinal truth. We've got to sing. You have to embody the praise and say, I'm going to participate and actually join in the choir of the angels, join in the choir of the martyrs, join in the choir of church history, join in the choir that's assembled, and we're going to sing for joy. Because I am a participant in God's drama of redemption. I'm on the field. I'm not in the stands. I'm not on the bench. I'm in the field. And even if it's a wilderness, I will praise. Because I know you've been my help. You were a help to Adam and Eve. They blew it. And you helped them. They made little fig leaf coverings. Terrible idea. They die quickly. God gives them 
a animal skin that had to be brought out by blood so they could be covered. God, you helped Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Esau. God, you helped Joseph. You helped Moses. You helped the Israelites. You helped David. You helped Esther. You helped Ruth. You helped Mary. You helped Peter. You helped Paul. You helped Augustine. You helped Perpetua and Felicity. You helped Martin Luther, Reformation Day. You helped John Calvin. You helped Charles Spurgeon. You helped Bernard of Clairvaux. You helped Billy Graham. You helped Elizabeth Elliot. You helped me. And you will be faithful to me. Because in the shadow of your wings, man, we love shade. Shade's the best. We know it. You live in Texas and you're at a friend's house at 4 o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday and you're having fun in the backyard. We are all in that shade talking to each other. At a kid's soccer game, you're in the shade because it gives you relief. It gives you comfort. It gives you protection too. And so there under the wings of God, like an eagle hovering who's close by, shade means he's close. We might think he's not there and he doesn't care and he's distant and he's not around, but David says, no, there's shade. So that means he's here. And when you're in the wilderness, remember he's here. That's why David says in Psalm 73, to draw near to God is my good. Not to get out of the wilderness, get out of the situation, which of course we would all want, but to be near to God is good. That's what the living Jesus tells us every single day. You are really now indestructible because of me. As he looked over Jerusalem and said, how I long to gather you under my wings. We now, as believers in the risen Christ, as those who, have, who are clinging to him and clinging to his resurrection from the dead, it's like we are in his wings and we're just looking up and he's saying, I got you. You are in my hands, and no one can snatch you out of my hands. See, friends, Jesus went through the wilderness for us. He went through death and rose again for us, and he stands in the heavenly place with, with arms open saying, you have shelter with me. You will walk through the wilderness, and I am with you. You will be satisfied by his love. You will feel it. You will drink it. You will eat it. You will meditate on it. When you are in the wilderness, I don't know what wilderness you might be in or which, which one's coming, but remember Psalm 63. Remember the schematic. Remember the movements. Remember the rhythms. God, I want to seek you. And, and maybe even today, you, as we've been reading Psalm 73, you're thinking, you know what? I don't really seek God. I know I should. But... The most I do is I, I come here on Sunday morning. I don't, I don't read this. I don't pray to him. I don't sing to him. I don't, I don't seek him. Well, you're, you're in the right place. Because we could all go around the room and say, yeah, I don't do everything the way I would like to do it. That's why sometimes people go, I don't go to church. It's a bunch of hypocrites. And I would always tell people, yeah, duh. We're not saying we're perfect. 
We're not saying we've got it all figured out. We're, we're all a bunch of hypocrites, and you could slither on and sit up at the front anytime. Chief of sinners, all of us. But maybe you're sitting here like, you know what, I don't, I don't seek him. We'll begin there. With that prayer to God, God, I don't seek you, but I want to. Would you forgive me? Would you show me how to follow you? Would, would, you, would you help me learn how to follow you and seek you, that I would be satisfied with you because all this stuff that this David guy's saying, I don't believe that. I just want you to get me out of hell. I, I, I just want you to fix my life. I, I, don't, I don't get the depths of what David's saying here. Good. Say it honestly to the Lord and say, now, would you teach me? Because I don't, I don't want to have a superficial spiritual life. I, I, want, to, I want it to be real. I want to go from, you know Mario, the old Mario, it can only go one way. That's, that's kind of what some people's spiritual understanding of, of Christianity is and God is, this one-dimensional, one direction. But when you know there is in Christ, you begin to see, oh, this is like Switch Mario, where it's 3D and I can navigate this entire world now with there is in Christ. And there's so much more beauty, so much more power, so much more goodness, so many more dimensions and things to following him. So when you're in this wilderness and whatever's coming, will you say earnestly, I'm seeking you? Cling to him in the nightmare. As you thrash and scream, cling to him knowing that he's holding you. Let's pray. Holy Father, would you help us we, we can be so clouded and distracted and overwhelmed by what we're in. Would you show us you're there? Show us where the, where the shadow of your wings are. Show us where we can be satisfied with the fatness upon fatness, with the rich food. Lord, I'm sure some of us are in a wilderness this morning. Spiritual, physically, medically, emotionally, relationally, David checks all of these wilderness boxes. And in a dry and a weary land we're in, Lord, we're looking to you. Help my brothers and sisters. Help me look to you to not throw our hands up in despair, but to throw them up in worship. God, you are my God, and I will seek you. In the dry and leery, weary land where there is no water, I will thirst for you. I will look upon you in the sanctuary, in the gathering of God's people. I will look upon you, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, I will praise you. And I will find joy and sing for joy in the shadow of your wings. So help us now, King Jesus, to sing, to rejoice, to know that we are now more than conquerors through him who loved us. What shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Shall Absalom? No. Shall job loss? No. Shall cancer, sickness, relational strife, marriage difficulties? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Help us, King Jesus. 
It's in your name that we pray, Lord. Amen.